They were going to be talking about rescued. And uh, you probably, if you had your television on at all, you heard about a rescue that took place in Thailand. And we followed how those soccer players and their coach trapped in those caves due to flooding and how that seals had to go in, divers from around the world going in, bringing them out, and that it was a rescue indeed. And, and when we think about rescued, that's important for us to understand that it seems that in that particular case, the, with each rescue, the audience of more people began to watch. They've got, they've got four boys. They've got, they've got eight boys. They've got to go back and, and get the last four boys and get the coach and, and the guys that are in there with them. And, and there was this building crescendo of, can they make it? Can they get them out? And then the world rejoiced because they were able to rescue all of them. And, and as we know now, that the pumps had failed and the water was starting to fill back up and there was, it was a very close call getting the last divers out and all of those kind of things. And we think of that and we think, wow, that was a very successful rescue. And what I hope we come away with today is understanding that, that we are a different type of rescue, that we have been rescued in a different scenario, a different way. But nonetheless, it is dramatic. Nonetheless, it is one that is life-saving. But today we're talking about a little bit different type of rescue as well, because we're talking about rescuing the martyr. And normally when you think about the martyr, you think about somebody who dies. And it's not a successful rescue if your victim dies, if your, if your subject dies, if the person you wanted to rescue. And yet, that's what we're talking about. When we think about martyrdom, martyrdom, we think about that being a spiritual gift you can only use one time. I mean, that's what a martyr is, dies one time. If you hear about a guy who had 16 successful kamikaze missions, you begin to wonder, what was wrong with that story that somebody 16 times? What motivates a martyr in the first place? And I think that's important for us to understand. What motivated 19 terrorists on 9-11 to board four different aircraft and destroy the lives of all on board and thousands of people on the ground? What motivated them to do that? And would you consider those terrorists martyrs? Or would you consider them terrorists? We consider them terrorists, and yet there were others who considered them to be martyrs. I read an interesting study this week. It was about how they recruit suicide bombers. And it was an interesting because the age of which recruitment is taking place is now as low as age seven. Getting a seven-year-old boy or a girl to strap on a vest filled with explosives and to kill themselves with the hope of being able to take out a lot of other people. 
In fact, in their training camps, they have two different kinds of camps. They have camps for 7 to 15-year-olds, and they have camps for 16 and up. But the study revealed some similarities about the, those who, were the, who had been selected and those who volunteered. They came from a life of poverty, and they were bored with life. They are often taught how to drive a vehicle as a part of their training. They'd never had the opportunity to do that. They're given praise and prestige among their peers and occasionally small amounts of pocket money. They are told they will be eulogized as great warriors who brought revenge on their enemies. Men will be rewarded in the afterlife with 72 virgins. Men and women will be allowed to recommend 70 people to be received into a paradise and they are assured that Allah will honor their recommendations. And you see videos of these young men leaving the training camp, going on their mission, and the people greeting them. And the one thing that they're saying to them is, recommend me, recommend me. What kind of martyr is that? Other types who, who use vehicles for attacks or physical assaults, if they are killed in that, they're also considered martyrs. And that is a vastly different approach, a vastly different definition than what we're talking about today. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. I find it interesting that the word martyr in the New Testament is only used three times. In Acts chapter 22, verse 20, the Apostle Paul, giving his own testimony, says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And there is a footnote in most Bibles that where that word martyr is used, the footnote says, could also be translated witness. The word witness, the Greek word martos, is used 29 times to describe a witness throughout the New Testament. So now I'd like for you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. We're going to be looking at the life of Stephen the martyr. So if you have your Bible, Acts 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. That's an introduction. This Stephen was one of the seven men who had been chosen earlier in that chapter to meet a need of Grecian widows within the early believers. The requirement of those were to be men who were being known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And now we have him described as a man full of God's grace and power, performing great wonders and signs. Verse 8 tells us that Stephen had already proven himself as a trustworthy witness and as a servant. So now let's continue reading, beginning in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexander, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. 
And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So now let's skip down to verse 15, and then we're going to take a look at the first verse in the seventh chapter. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? I want us to get that picture for a moment. Here was Stephen serving God faithfully, helping meet the needs of the early church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he began to continue to minister beyond those initial needs that he was meeting. And then he began to speak boldly and he began to confront those with the truth of the gospel. And they tried to get people to speak evil against him because they could not deal with the power with which the Spirit had given him to speak. And so then they said, we must discredit this witness. We must discredit this one who would do so much good in our community. And so then they were taken to the Sanhedrin. And all the Sanhedrin asked, are these charges true? You'll notice that the false charges had been against Stephen had been revolving around what he taught and what he believed about the Old Testament. They said that he had made false and blasphemous statements. And that explains why the next 49 verses in Acts chapter 7, that, that Stephen is giving this defense of the faith. If you want a, an excellent brief notes of Old Testament history, I recommend those 49 verses in Acts chapter 7. Because Stephen begins with Abraham and he comes all the way through to the Messiah. And he has outlined it well. He has said the things that they believed in in terms of the Old Testament history. But then he went from preaching to meddling. Because there he then began to say, now you guys are just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet you didn't persecute? Was there ever a prophet you didn't kill? And he laid upon them the murder of Christ. And so verse 54 says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Now, earlier I asked what motivates a martyr. And I think we're going to find that Stephen's motivations are far different than those that I mentioned earlier. 
And I'm going to suggest that there are simply two motives that I want us to focus on today. And the first is, Stephen was motivated by the example of Jesus himself. The night before Jesus' own death, he warned his disciples in John chapter 16, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Interesting. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. What did, what did, what's implied in that? There is a possibility that the things that are about to happen could make you begin to doubt. And he said, I'm telling you these things so that you won't fall away. I'm telling you these things so that you will not doubt. He goes on to explain, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Was that not the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul? Had he not begun to persecute the church out of a zeal for the law itself? And Jesus said, this is what is going to happen. This is what will take place. I don't want you to fall away. In fact, the people that will kill you will think they're doing God a favor. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. There was Jesus in the upper room hours before his own crucifixion saying to his disciples, I want you to be aware. I want you to be ready. I want you to understand because I want you to be my witness. Do you think when Jesus said, when the time comes, that he might have even been thinking about Stephen and what was going to take place with Stephen. When the time comes, we don't know when our time will come. God does. But Jesus said, when the time comes, I want you to understand this. And, and I, we talked about the example of Jesus. I want you to notice the similarities between the statements of Jesus on the cross and those made by Stephen as he was being murdered. In verse 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sound familiar? Very reminiscent of Jesus' words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In verse 60, Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus had said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. So now let me ask this. How is the example of Jesus affecting your life? How are your actions like his? How certain are you that when you take your last breath on earth, your next one will be in God's presence? How willing are you to extend forgiveness to those who cruelly treat you? How willing are you to forgo any attempt at revenge? You notice the difference between the martyrs that I spoke of earlier and of Stephen and of our Lord and of his expectation of us. Far different motive. I am to be motivated by the example of Jesus. And my life is to reflect Jesus in that. Remember Paul's encouragement 
to the Romans. And he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. Earlier, I categorized martyrdom as a one-and-done spiritual gift. But Paul's admonition to be living sacrifices seems to make it more than once, doesn't it? In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, that's, that's a martyrdom that happens on a daily basis. That's what it means for us to follow the example of Jesus. Anyone who wants to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. How do you get a grip on the cross that Christ wants you to carry? Your cross is far different than this one behind me. Your cross is far different than mine. We each have our own, and you know the phrase, cross to bear. And sometimes people use that phrase in rather sad ways. Well, that's my cross to bear. I have straight hair, and I wanted curly. That's my cross to bear. I'm lactose intolerant. That's not your cross, okay? When we think in terms of taking up your cross, what is your cross? Your cross is to live a life following the example of Jesus. That will look differently in every circumstance you face. But that is your example. How did Jesus react? When I look at Stephen, I see a man who understood, oh, that's what Jesus did, so that must be what he wants me to do. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. So, Lord Jesus, forgive them. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said, Lord, receive my spirit. You see, when we understand what the example is, we begin to say, okay, it's just a simple matter then of saying, what did Jesus do? How does that apply to me? What does my life need to look like now? What's next? And so on a daily basis, I become the martyr. On the daily basis, I die to self, and I follow Jesus' example. Now, I want to suggest another motivation. The other motivation is the spirit of Jesus. The example of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. And the reason I'm choosing those are because those were the ones that Stephen chose. You remember why Stephen was able to confound his critics Back in the 10th verse of Acts 6, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So the example of the Spirit is to allow the Holy Spirit then to direct how you 
live. Let the Holy Spirit direct how you interact. Let the Holy Spirit show you. Let the Holy Spirit motivate you, instruct you, guide you, correct you, comfort you. You see, that's what he wants. That's what he's promised to do for all of Jesus' followers. That night in the upper room, Jesus not only warned his disciples that there would be those who would persecute them and even kill them, he also promised there in John 16 about the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I go away. You could not have convinced those guys in the upper room that night that his leaving was good. That's why they struggled with it so much. They certainly could not have agreed, Jesus, it is good for you to go and be, be mercilessly persecuted, abused, and killed. Yeah, that's a good thing. But Jesus, knowing all of that, said, it is good for you that I go away. And here's why. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then notice what, what Jesus said there, again in John 16. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Don't overlook those verses. Don't overlook that. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world wrong. Think about that. The world says you, as a follower of Christ, have gotten it wrong. You, as a follower of Christ, don't understand. Jesus said, it is good for you that I go away because when I go away, I will send the advocate. I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes... He will convict the world or convince the world. He will prove to the world that it's wrong. You know, it's one thing for us to say, well, you know, that's just wrong. I've had people say that about me. One of my favorite sandwiches when I was a little boy was jelly and mayonnaise. And I've had people say, that's just wrong. <laughs> I challenge you, go home today and make yourself a joke. <laughs> We're really, but Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come back and say to the world, you've got it wrong. And he's going to say to his children, Regardless of what the world tells you, you've got it right. You see, that's the example of the spirit that Stephen saw. That's why Stephen was so willing to speak. He gave an excellent defense of the faith of Judah, of the Old Testament law. And he would have been doing so well, and the Sanhedrin would have said, no, guys, he's got it right. He's Abraham all the way down through the prophets. He's got it right. Until, prompted by the Holy Spirit, he said, and you guys, 
you guys murdered the Messiah of whom all the prophets foretold. And they said, oh, you've got that wrong. But the Spirit said, Stephen, you tell the truth. This is the example. You've got it right. Galatians chapter 5, great fruit of the Spirit passage of Scripture. Verses 23 and 24, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things. Verse 25 kind of gets overlooked. And there Paul wrote, since we live by the Spirit, notice this next phrase, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Think about that for a minute. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? It means I'm not running ahead of Him. It means I'm not lagging behind. It means I'm not going off on my own course. I want to keep in step. Before our service started, praise team was talking backstage. Ron was reminding him, okay, folks, when we get out there, I start off and I've got some taps and we've got to be ready to go, keeping in step. Much more than a drummer, the Holy Spirit is the one who sets our pace. The Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us in step with God. Isn't it interesting that Stephen seemed to understand that? Stephen could have said, you know, the guys are really digging this message that I've got so far. I think I'll just uh, say a prayer and we'll all go home right now. But he didn't. Because the Holy Spirit said, and this is the next part of the message. And it cost him his life. But I think this concept of dying daily is, and being led by the Spirit is what, the apostle, what empowered the Apostle Paul to write to the Philippians when he said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I, I don't know how familiar you are with the name of Jim Elliot, but as I was growing up, that was a name and a story that was held up and is a challenge to me. Jim Elliot, along with four other missionaries, were murdered by the Aka Indians in Ecuador on January 8th, 1956. And one of his best-known statements is this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he, that which he cannot lose. Very reminiscent of what the Lord said in Luke 9. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I can't keep my life. I will die at some point but I can give my life to gain that which I will never lose, and that is my eternal life with Christ. Now, here's the thing that I learned about this statement. I always envisioned him writing that beautiful statement by a kerosene lantern somewhere in the jungles of Ecuador. Jim Elliott wrote that on October 28th, 1949, seven years before his death. 
You see, what it means to follow the example of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus is that I make decisions now that will have impact down the line that I don't even know. Stephen followed Christ, was excited to be able to help people who needed groceries to get groceries, and God led him into other ministries. Stephen made this statement of his life with his life. I have given my life to follow Jesus and to listen to the Holy Spirit. And if it winds up being stoned to death outside of town, so be it. We make those decisions now, not in the heat of the moment. And that's why now is such an important time for you. Because now you have the opportunity to decide, am I going to follow the example of Jesus? Am I going to follow the spirit of Jesus? Will I live my life in that way? You see, God does save the martyr, but not necessarily from physical death. He first rescues us from the dominion of darkness. And then he sends us back into the same darkness to, be, to assist in the rescue of others. That's why Stephen could be so bold. When we're already crucified with Christ, we can follow the example of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. The question is, have you been crucified with Christ? Has there been that time in your life when you said, Lord Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want your Holy Spirit to live in my life. I am willing to die to myself. I'm willing to be buried in baptism, raised up to live a brand new life. Have you made that decision? That's the starting point. Father, I thank you that you give to us today an opportunity to hear you Father, you give to us the opportunity not only to hear you, but to follow you. I pray, Father, that today we will understand that we have been called to die to self on a daily basis so that we might live forever in your presence. Father, you know the circumstances we're going to face this week Perhaps there will be a time this week we will encounter something. We will look back to right now and we'll say, God, thank you that I made that commitment to you back then because now I know what to do with this. To that end, Lord, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.